however, marrying into a Scottish family. Continue our series in the book of Acts. Uh, we've called it the spreading flame. We began this way back in January. And we've called it the spreading flame to describe how the gospel, lack of fire or lack of flame, spreads throughout the world in response to the commission Jesus gave his followers to carry the fire, the gospel, the good news about his life and death, his resurrection and return from their base in Jerusalem out to the ends of the earth. And that's our theme for the year. That's our verse for the year. There are bookmarks and cards if you're here for the first time. You'll see them on the shelves as you go out. Just help yourself as a reminder of what we're focusing on as a church. But there are two questions we need to ask and answer about this spreading flame. The first one is this. Are there certain places that the flame cannot reach? Firewalls, as it were, that act as barriers to stop the flame of the gospel going beyond them. And we've recently seen how the flame of the gospel crossed the barrier, the great barrier that separated Jews and Gentiles. And today, as we continue our series, we're going to see how the flame of the gospel leaps across the sea, the Aegean Sea, leaps across from Asia Minor into Greece and what we now call Europe. There are no places that the flame cannot touch. But there's a second question linked in with that. Are there certain people that the flame cannot touch? People who are untouchable or even untouchables as far as the message of Jesus Christ is concerned. And today we're going to discover, we've heard it through the children reading for us, that on their first stop in this mission to Europe, three very different people become followers of Jesus. A businesswoman, a slave girl, and a Roman jailer. In the Bible Speaks Today commentary on Acts, which we referred to several times, John Stott comments, the head of a Jewish household would use the same prayer every morning, giving thanks that God had not made him a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. That's not in the Bible, that was their prayer though. But here are representatives of all three categories, redeemed and united in Christ. And then he concludes, for truly, as Paul had recently written to the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's Galatians 3.28 if you're making notes. So, that's the theme I want us to look at this morning. All one in Christ Jesus. As we look at the story of how these three very different people came to faith in Christ. So, it will help to have a Bible in front of you. There are Bibles in the pews. We're going to be looking at Acts 16, verses 11 to 40. And if you have a pew Bible, it's easy to find because it's on page 1111. Just take my coat off because it's too hot up here. Now, we saw in our last study, if you are here last week, and you can download all this on the internet if you're interested, or DVDs and tapes are available of the previous ones in the series. This is actually number 26 in our series. Uh, we saw in our last study that Paul, along with Silas and young Timothy, had arrived on their mission at the port of Troas. And there one night, Paul had seen this vision, a dream, of a man from Macedonia over the water, begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. 
And they conclude from this that God has called them to move from Troas and to go over the water, over the Aegean Sea, to preach the gospel in Greece. So they set off. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and notice if you're reading carefully, almost certainly Luke, the writer of Acts, is included because from verse 10 he changes it to we. We did this, we did that. He's, a, he's part of the party. So they set out on this voyage, it's about around about 100 miles uh, across the ocean. Halfway across they stop a little island called Samothrace for the night. They moor there rather than sailing in the dark. And then the next day they set off again and they finally come, you'll see there's a map on the screen. There are maps, I think, in the back of most of the Pew Bibles uh, if you want to follow where we're going or where they went. And they finally arrive at the port of Neapolis and when they disembark from there, they've got a 10-mile walk into Philippi itself, which is inland. Uh, Luke tells us, if you look at the Bible in front of you, verse 12, he tells us quite accurately, uh, they travelled to Philippi, which was a Roman colony and a leaning city of the district of Macedonia. Uh, when the Romans conquered lands, uh, for, for their protection and to increase their influence, they set apart certain places or cities as Roman colonies. And they encouraged Roman citizens to go and live there, and it was like a little bit of little Rome away from home. Uh, and they gave them, nothing new in the world with politicians, they gave them tax breaks to live there. And all the privileges being a Roman citizen, living in one of these colonies. And Philippi was one of these privileged places. A, a little island of Rome in the middle of Greece. It wasn't the capital of the province, but it was a very prosperous city. It was located in a fertile valley, rich with copper, silver and gold deposits, and it was on a major east-west trading route. It was a famous Roman road that the Romans had built, the Ignatian Way, that started on the coast and went right across the other side, as far west as you could go. And so that's where they arrived. And Paul's normal practice, when he arrived at a place, he had a kind of missionary strategy. When he arrived at a place... He nearly always went, first of all, to the Jewish synagogue to speak about the good news of Jesus and tell the, the Jewish hearers there. Now, when he arrives in Philippi, it appears that there is no Romans, there is no Jewish synagogue. If you wanted to build a synagogue, still true today actually, or if you wanted to hold a Jewish meeting, you needed ten males to constitute an official group. And it appears that there weren't that many Jews in Philippi. So when they arrived there and discovered there was no synagogue, where do you go to find people who might be interested in the gospel? Well, as the old son says, down by the riverside. Uh, next to rivers was a very popular place for worship because people often used the water for ritual bathing and so on. And so Paul and his companions, just a mile outside Philippi, is a river, it's called the Ganges, not the Ganges, that's in India, the Ganges, and down by the riverside, they find a group of people who are meeting there for prayer. And so Luke introduces, very interesting this, there were hundreds of converts, probably thousands, as Paul made this journey. But it's very interesting why, why he focuses, Luke, he's not going to tell the story of all of them, he focuses on just three people in the city, particularly, who came to faith in Christ. Three very diverse people who become converts in Philippi. So, let me introduce them to you. You've probably read the story before if you know the Bible. If not, this is probably quite exciting and interesting. I hope it is anyway. First of all, a businesswoman whose heart the Lord opened. Verses 13 to 15. Many people have commented on the irony of this story. 
Paul went over to Macedonia, because a man of Macedonia said, come and help us. And when he got to Macedonia, he met women. And the first convert was a woman of Macedonia. Actually, strictly speaking, she wasn't from Macedonia. We're told that she came from another place called Thyatira, which was back where they'd come from, in the Lycus Valley. And she was a trader. She traded in expensive cloth that had been treated with a very expensive dye, a purple dye, made from shellfish. All this extra information I'm sure you find very interesting. If, like me, you keep marine fish. I've never got one that has purple dye yet, though. Uh, the region she came from was originally known as the Kingdom of Lydia. Uh, and some people think that Lydia wasn't really a name. Lydia was a trade name. You know, she was the Lydia lady. You know, like the Tupperware lady. You know, there's probably nowhere called Tupper, I know that. But anyway, you get the point I mean. <laughs> so, here she is. She's a dealer in expensive cloth. She's a very wealthy woman. This is, this is top-class market stuff. This is not your market stall, you know. This is real expensive purple cloth. And whatever her name, let's stick with Lydia for the point of the discussion. The important thing about her, notice, she was described as a worshipper of God. Now, when someone was described as a worshipper of God, it was a term used for people who were interested in the Jewish faith and its teaching and practices, but they hadn't formally yet converted. So, when Paul and his companions arrive outside the city, they go down by the riverside, and there's this woman and her women friends are holding a prayer meeting down by the riverside. And she is interested in the message that they have to bring. Now, in our kind of evangelical jargon, we would say she was open to the gospel. In fact, look carefully what it says. It doesn't actually say that. It says, it describes Lydia's response to the gospel. It says, the Lord opened her heart to the gospel. Verse 14. Now, the word heart here, when you read the word heart in the Bible, it doesn't mean what we mean by heart. But it includes that. When we talk about the heart, we think of the emotions. In biblical thought, Hebrew and Greek thought, the heart includes the whole person, mind, emotion and will. No doubt she was moved by the message, but God opened her heart to understand the message as well. And not only that, to respond to the message. Now, there's a very important principle here, which every preacher needs to know and constantly be reminded of. That only God can open hearts, only God can open minds to understand the truth. Because the Bible says all of us are blinded by our sinful nature, by the God of this world, and we need God's help. God needs to open our hearts and minds. So, even as I'm speaking this morning, I'm aware that some of you already switched off and think, how much longer does this church go on? Some of you are already thinking about your football team yesterday. Some of you are already thinking about other things. And no matter how clearly I might try to express the message, which is my responsibility, only God can open your heart and mind to really understand the truth of the good news of Jesus. And this is what happened with Lydia. That's why we always pray. Before we come out of that door there, the elders are praying. There are other people who pray at 10 o'clock in the morning. What are they praying for? We're praying that God might speak to us, that he might open our hearts and minds to understand the message. Because without that, we can have the best service in the world, the most fantastic music, most greatest arrangement, but unless God opens your heart and mind to the truth of Jesus Christ and his message, it's a wasted exercise. So, the Lord opened our heart. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, that we have no part to play in this. Lydia responded when her heart was opened, by confessing Christ, by being baptised along 
with the members of a household. You have to make the response, but God enables you to make that response. Uh, And these two things we need to keep together. And so she identifies with the Lord Jesus Christ by being baptized, and we'll come back to that at the end. But she not only identifies with him, she also identifies with the messengers of the gospel. The Lord opened her heart to the gospel. She opens her home to the gospel messengers. Look at verse 15. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Obviously a very wealthy woman, with lots of resources, probably a really big, expensive house. But to offer hospitality like this was, meant more than it does in our culture. Hospitality is a great thing, but in that culture, if you invited someone to your home, it meant you identified with them, you became fully part of their family. It was a very important step. Uh, Now, returning to our theme, we're almost through this woman whose heart the Lord opened. You may be sitting there this morning and saying, well, okay, I can understand how the gospel, the flame of the gospel, reaches a woman like this, because A, she's a woman, B, she's got enough time in her hands to take an interest in spiritual things. And she's therefore, you know, a prime candidate. She's just the sort of person in Philippi you'd think is definitely a prime candidate to become a Christian. We have these concepts about, you know, what are the kind of people who, who become Christians? You know, you can get really wound up about this. We were sharing this in our fellowship group on, on Thursday, you know. You know the sort of thing if you're a really sincere Christian and, you know, you get on a train and you think, I'm going to sit next to somebody. Maybe I could talk to them. And so you go down the compartments and you look and you think, no, not that one, no, no, and... Oh, that guy there. Oh, that, 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 that little old lady there. She's son, I think I'll go for that one, you know? And we think the people are prime candidates for the gospel. The great, the most surprising thing is the most surprising people who come to faith in Christ. If you want to know that, just look around you in this church. <laughs> Believe me. Or go to Nidre, for example, this morning where they have five people being baptized. Uh, so, the second person we meet in the stories, Luke tells us, is a very different person. We're going to have to re- phrase our definition of the kind of person who becomes Christian. Okay, secondly, a slave girl whose mouth the Lord closed. Verses 16 to 18. Here they are going to the prayer meeting. Each day, there's probably bigger crowds gathering down by the riverside for these sort of evangelistic meetings and discussions. And they're going down one Sabbath day, one Saturday, of course. And they come into contact with another woman. Or rather, she comes into contact with them. She is at the opposite end of the social scale to Lydia. Not only does she not have many possessions, she doesn't even possess her own herself. She's a slave. And her owners use her for a particular purpose. Here is a girl we read, who is possessed by a spirit. Verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. This girl girl has a gift of clairvoyance. She's able to predict the future, we're told, because she's possessed by spirit. The interesting word that's used there for the spirit is described, literally in Greek, as the python spirit. A snake spirit. Uh, This particular spirit was well known in Greece. It was associated with the shrine at Delphi. You know where people got their oracles? The same thing. Uh, Its original name was Pythia. Its priests were called Puthia. And when the snake overcame them, they fell into a trance and could predict the future. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, this is all mumbo-jumbo. 
Some of us who've worked in these parts of the world will tell you it is not the case. I remember when Nietzsche and I, with small children, went to live in a village in Nigeria, in a mud house way out in the sticks. It was supposed to be a Christian village. And one of the women spoke to my wife, and she got to know her quite well, and she said to her, she told some really interesting things. She said, see that man down there? She said, at night times, he goes down to the river, interestingly, and he turns into a snake. And he can do all sorts of things, and we're very afraid of him. Interesting, the association with snakes and that kind of thing. There are people we know in this church who can predict the future. doesn't mean there are people who we should trust. Don't be taken in by these things. So, this woman is taken in, possessed by the Spirit. She's able to predict the future. And her owners, therefore, exploit her. She's exploited by her owners. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. Now here's Paul and his missionary party. They come into contact with this girl. And how interesting that the spirit within the girl recognises who they are. Here's her disturbing testimony. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, the terminology may be reflecting that of her own religious background. But what she actually says, notice what she says, is absolutely, well, certainly, broadly, accurate. The American pastor Kent Hughes in his uh, series of sermons on Acts comments, the missionary team could have reasoned, she's telling the truth, why not let her speak? We would never get crowds like this on our own. Besides, maybe, as she associates with us, she will see the light. I suspect today there are many who would have taken that approach. Perhaps she'd have been on the God channel. But Paul is not at all tempted in this direction. No, her testimony is a disturbing testimony and he becomes increasingly agitated as day after day this woman follows them round shouting this message out until he can bear it no longer and so we see her decisive deliverance. Finally, Paul became so troubled he turned around and said to the Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ I command you to come out of her at that moment the Spirit left her. The authority of Jesus, as in his earthly ministry, is greater than the devil and all his minions. For he conquered them at the cross. The spirit immediately leaves the girl and she is freed. Such is the power of the gospel then and now as it makes inroads into enemy territory and lives. And although Luke doesn't give explicit details, almost certainly this girl becomes a follower of Jesus. The Lord Jesus once said something, we saw it in our series in Luke's Gospel, in Luke 11, uh, said there's a great danger that if a spirit is driven out of someone, the great danger is unless the Holy Spirit comes to live within that person, seven worse spirits might come and the, the end state of the person is worse than the beginning. And so almost certainly this woman comes to put her faith in Christ and she receives a greater spirit, the Holy Spirit who comes to live within her. So, he's a second convert in Philippi. Very different from the first. But, if you're a man this morning, you may be saying, yeah, but it's all for women. However, a third convert in Philippi is about to blow your complacency and any excuses out of the water. So, after a businesswoman whose heart the Lord opened, a slave girl whose mouth the Lord closed, we then meet a jailer whose prison the Lord opened. Verses 19 to 40. When the owners of the slave girl realised the spirit had left her, they also realised that the, their means of making money had also left or gone. It's actually the same word in verse 18 uh, for leaving. The spirit left, 
the income left. And they are none too pleased, as we'll see later on, God willing, as we come to the story in Ephesus in Acts 19. When the gospel affects people's lives, it can also affect people's livelihoods. And this inevitably leads to trouble for the gospel messengers. So the owners of the girls seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace. You might think, why did they drag them into the marketplace? Well, the marketplace in Greek towns was the place of public forums. You didn't go to the magistrate's house. There was a raised pavement in the, in the market square and the magistrates would sit on this and deliver their verdicts in public. And they accused them of anti-Roman activities. It's a false charge, of course. But the crowd join in. They're given no chance to answer the charges and the magistrates carry out summary justice. They're stripped publicly, humiliated publicly, and they're severely flogged. Now, they're not flogged like our Lord was with a whip. This is a beating to teach them a lesson. And they had official people who did this job. We know in Philippi they had a couple of them. In Greek they're called, just for your interest, they're called lictus, which is where we get the expression, someone's given a licking. Have you ever wondered what the expression licking means? Why are they going to lick somebody? No, this is from the lictor to bash someone. And they beat them, humiliate them, and they're thrown into prison under the care of the jailer who's given strict instructions to guard them carefully. Now, the town jailer was almost certainly a retired Roman army veteran, probably a centurion, who'd settle, you know, for his retirement and give this little number looking after the prison in Philippi. And they didn't come much tougher than that. The last thing this man expects as he puts his prisoners in for the night in the stocks down in the deepest dungeon is that by the time the night is over, he will be baptised as a Christian. How does it happen? Well, Luke describes the unexpected events, how the jailer came to faith in Christ. See, Lydia came to faith by a riverside. The slave girl came to faith through an exorcism, her own. The jailer comes to faith in very unexpected circumstances. Notice these three unexpected things that happened to him. It begins with an unexpected imprisonment. After they'd been severely flogged, verse 23, <clears throat> they were thrown into prison. The jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, Paul and Silas didn't deserve to be flogged or put in stocks in a dungeon. But this was the means, this was God's means for the salvation of this Roman jailer, although he and they don't realise it. And, as the children expressed in their reading, rather than bemoaning their fate, Paul and Silas hold an evangelistic service in their cell with a captive audience, literally. And, and we read, it's a wonderful story, because when you're in the stocks, you couldn't move, you know, if you lay down, it just crippled you. So, there they were, singing hymns, whether they sang the song we sang this morning, is a bit doubtful, but they were singing songs and hymns of praise to God at midnight. C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, it's always encouraging, if you, you can get the whole collection of all the sermons Spurgeon preached, and if you're, if you're a trainee preacher or want to preach God's word, do all your preparation and then see what Spurgeon said about it. You'll find there's always something interesting or worth reading, even these over a hundred years on. Spurgeon was very blunt. Here's what he says. Any fool can sing in the day. It's easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight. But the skillful singer is he who can sing when there is not a ray of light to read by. Songs in the night come only from God, they're not in the power of men. You want a reference to songs in the night? Job 35 verse 10, Psalm 42 verse 8, if you're making notes. Now, 
not the main point here, but let me just ask a question. Is this a message for some Christian here today? Can you sing in prison at midnight when things are dark? Painful experience. Unjustified suffering. Paul and Silas did. And the other prisoners were listening to them. But not the jailer. He wasn't even in church, you know. He was fast asleep in bed with his family. However, he's, he's awakened by a second unexpected thing, an unexpected earthquake. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prison was shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. <clears throat> the jailer wakes up. He realises what has happened. Under Roman law, he is responsible for any prisoner who escapes. His own life will be forfeit if any prisoner escapes. He knows this and fearing the worst, he rushes out, sees what's happened. He draws his sword. He's about to commit suicide. But he is saved, in more ways than he expects, by an unexpected response from Paul, who shouts out, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. It's a dramatic story, isn't it? Can it be true? Surely the prisoners, at least one or two of them, have escaped. But the lights are brought, and the jailer realises that what he's heard is true. All the prisoners are still here. Such unexpected events bring him trembling to his knees as he asks a question. Men, what must I do to be saved? Now, there's a lot of discussion about what exactly he meant by the question. What sort of salvation is he talking about? One writer suggests we should paraphrase it by, Gentlemen, can you tell me how to get out of this mess I'm in? I'm not sure about that. For one good reason. Why were these men in prison? Because everyone in Philippi knew about this slave girl who had been shouting out, These are the men who tell you the way to be saved. Verse 17. Whatever the jailer means by his question, notice the answer he received. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Any misunderstanding is removed. As Paul and Silas, we're told, verse 32, spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. So notice the outcome, the action he took. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, and immediately he and all his family were baptised. American pastor again, Daryl Buck, best commentary on Acts if you want one that's really long and detailed, says the jailer may have washed their wounds, but he himself received a better washing. So there is a happy ending. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Joy is one of the great themes in Luke's story, in the Gospel and in Acts. And also in Paul's letter that he later wrote, which is in our New Testament, the letter to the Philippians. I just like to imagine that jailer, you know, when Paul's letter comes to Philippi and the jailer's there sitting in the congregation and, and they read chapter 4, verse 4, and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and I say it again, rejoice. And I can see the jailer there in the pew saying, well, not the pew, on the floor saying, saying, Amen! Yeah, I remember them rejoicing in the Lord when they were in the stocks where I put them in prison. Always! Rejoice in the Lord. He's a man of practice, what he preached. So Paul and Silas leave the prison. But not till they've received an apology from the city magistrates who are alarmed to learn that they have broken Roman law, a severe charge, by trying Roman citizens without a proper trial and flogging them, which was against the law for Roman citizens. And so Paul insists on an apology. Probably to safeguard the little fledgling church that has been established there in Philippi, and finally they leave town. Now, coming towards the end, let's, let's conclude where we've gone on this. 
We've got three very diverse people. A businesswoman whose heart the Lord opened, a slave girl whose mouth the Lord shut, a jailer whose prison the Lord opened. Julian noticed the flame of the gospel touches these three very diverse people. So what kind of people become Christians? All kinds. Any kinds. As Paul later wrote in one of his letters to the church in Corinth, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, is a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. What about you? Many excuse, say, our gospel's not for me, I'm not that type, I'm not religious. I'm, I'm the wrong gender, I'm the wrong social background. No, the gospel is for all people, everywhere, anyone, you, me, anyone is in Christ as a new creation. Now, although there were three very diverse people, the circumstances in which they came to faith were very different, there are, in fact, some features which they shared in common. Will you notice three essentials for all people? I'll just go through these really quickly, but you can follow them through later. Three essentials if you're to become a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're not a Christian yet this morning. Maybe you are. I want to ask you if you've followed these three things through, all right? And, and they all begin with the same letter, which preachers always do to help you remember, all right? So when you get home, you can remember when you discuss this at lunch. Okay, the first is the word believe. You have to believe the message. Paul and Silas were there proclaiming a message that was audible, that they responded to. They discussed with Lydia and her friends by the riverside. Paul spoke to the demon in the girl. Paul and Silas spoke the word of God to the jailer. If you're to become a Christian, you need to hear the message and to understand it. But that is not enough. These three people not only heard, but they responded. They believed. Belief or faith is not just accepting some facts, but committing yourself to them and the person who makes them. There are two sides to it. Repentance means turning away from your sin, your old way of life. And faith means putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Saviour and your Lord. So here's the first question. Have you believed? The second essential that follows immediately from it is be baptised. As we read through the book of Acts, we discover time and again, those who heard and believed were baptised. Lydia was baptised. The jailer was baptised. There's no specific mention of it, but I have no doubt that the slave girl was baptised. Once you become a Christian, after hearing and responding, you cannot keep it a secret. You need to confess to others where you stand. That you belong to Jesus Christ, you're his disciple. Now, that's true throughout your life. If you're a student coming up here for the first time, Look for opportunities. I don't mean, you know, march into your lecture hall the first day with a big Bible and say, hey, everybody wants to tell you I'm a Christian. But God will give you opportunities to say, to nail your colours to the mass. Do it soon rather than later. But right at the beginning of our Christian lives, we make a public confession of faith in Christ at the start of the Christian life. Paul didn't say to the jailer, well, this has been a long night, it's a traumatic experience. You better think this through carefully and we'll baptise you when you are ready. The jailer was ready because he heard and believed. He received his baptismal class there and then in his home, probably in a fountain or well in the courtyard, along with his household. There are some who suggest that this, this must have meant that, that children and babies were baptised as well. It's an argument from silence, but notice very carefully that those who baptised were those who heard the word of the Lord spoken to them, hearing and understanding the response of faith. So, here's a second question for you. You might say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I've heard, 
I believed, I'm trusting Jesus Christ. How strange that people sometimes say to me, I'm not yet ready. How will you be more ready? If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, there is nothing to hinder you from being baptised. Take a stand. We have a service this year, almost every month we've had a baptismal service. You'll see details in the bulletin about how you can follow that through and and talk to us about it. Uh, We've got people planning to be baptised September, uh, October, we've got our anniversary, November. I have a Christmas baptism, never had one of those before, but we'll have one when we need one. But there are at least a dozen people waiting at the moment to be baptised, but we can fit more in. These are the first two essentials. Okay, believe, be baptised. Thirdly, belong. What happened to these three people after they became Christians in Philippi? We don't have any specific details about them personally, but we can be sure of one thing. They all became members of the church in Philippi. And the church was not a building, but people. They met in homes, like the nice home that Lydia had. And I want you to imagine, there they are in Lydia's home. What a strange mixture of people that, humanly speaking, in that day and age, would never have sat together, let alone broken bread together. A rich businesswoman, a slave girl, and a Roman jailer. All one in Christ Jesus. Do you belong? Do you belong to a local church? However it stretches itself. If you want to know what belong to this local church is about, immediately after the service I'll be in the vestry here. You're welcome to come and join us. You get an early coffee and just informally explain to you what it means to be a member of this church. That's the first step. It's a non-commitment thing. We don't send the boys around afterwards. It's just for you to choose if, if that's where you want to belong. If you're a student, you know, look around but make your mind up. You know, put your roots down in a place where you can grow and be accountable as a Christian. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you been baptised? Do you belong? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Gospel of Jesus Christ, your Son, is good news for all people. For each one of us here. So open our hearts and minds to understand the truth. Your truth to respond to it in obedience, repentance and faith, to confess Christ in baptism and to belong to your people by identifying with them in a local church. As you've spoken to each one of us individually this morning, we pray that we might respond appropriately, immediately, gladly. And we thank you for your great love for us, for the joy that these Christians in Philippi experience. May we know that joy today as we go out into another week. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.